Discover the possibilities of internal medicine. Dr. Andrew Coates is an assistant professor of medicine and psychiatry at Albany Medical Center and a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He graduated medical school from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and completed his internal medicine residency at Bassett Hospital in Cooperstown, New York. He is board certified in internal medicine as well as hospice and palliative care medicine. During his career, Dr. Coates has been involved in several advocacy initiatives and currently leads the distinction and advocacy track at Albany Medical College, along with an evidence-based geriatrics consult team. Thank you, Dr. Coates, for talking with us and sharing your perspective for medical students who are interested in pursuing internal medicine. Thank you, Gurleen, for thinking of me. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit about how and why you decided to pursue internal medicine. I don't know if I've thought about this for a very long time. I started medical school uh, just after 30 years old. So at a certain point, I didn't want a residency that was going to go on for many, many years. But um, there's an intellectual side to internal medicine, and I'm very keenly interested in history. I actually have a, a master's degree in history before medical school and learning about the days of the giants, the 20th century uh, contribution at Hopkins and Columbia and Harvard and getting to know some people who know, knew those people in medical school made me very conscious of the contribution of uh, leaders of internal medicine to medicine as a whole in the United States. Uh, the other thing is um, the breadth of the field, the options that it offers. You know, the residency is a lifelong foundation and uh, the practice of medicine, but then can lead to a disparate range of specialization. All of that was attractive to me uh, in terms of laying a good foundation, but then also opening options in the future. I know you're involved in palliative care medicine, and that's been an involvement in some of your previous job opportunities as well. I know as medical students, we don't really have much exposure to palliative care medicine. So yeah. I was wondering a little bit about how you became involved in palliative care specifically. The real answer is I was in the only inpatient hospice as the attending on many cases because I was the only full-time hospitalist in the big community hospital where I was practicing. And one of the pioneer nurse hospice nurses of the community said to me, why aren't you board certified in hospice and palliative medicine? And my answer was, is that a thing? I didn't even know. It wasn't too long after that, that it became a subspecialty of internal medicine. And since hospice and palliative medicine has become a subspecialty open to almost any board certified specialist to further their training. So I would say that I became involved with end of life care because I was a pioneer hospitalist seeing patients only in the hospital at a time when by far the majority of people who die in our society die in the hospital. Because of that fact, I felt that I needed to be confident in very difficult decision-making, including end-of-life decision-making, including when to say out loud that the care we were offering was futile. And then because of the local quirk of the hospital that I was in, having 14 inpatient hospice beds and having nurses who had pioneered hospice for our community and senior doctors who I later got to know who had pioneered hospice really for the United States, I became interested in that territory. What would you say is the most challenging aspect of palliative care medicine that you've come across? Well, the, the human side, there is a really rare challenging time when 
family members have unresolved conflicts that are, are not going to be resolved uh, in time to be supportive or useful or helpful. I like to say that out of 10,000 encounters, 9,999 times patients and their families will rise to the occasion. Siblings will bury the hatchet. The patients will embrace or discover their faith, occasionally reject it very powerfully, that they'll rise to the occasion of the, of the life-threatening illness or the terrible decision or, in fact, death. One time out of 10,000, we might have to call the cops because someone lost their temper too much. And uh, that side of it is challenging and a little scary. But I really would say something else. The hardest part for me about dignified end-of-life care in the United States of America is that we do not have the resources we should. We do not choose to put the resources we should toward our patients. And to think that, you know, the most peaceful death um, could have been better, should have been better, is troublesome all by itself. But when things go horribly wrong, then it's a real disaster. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think that transitions well into discussing some of your advocacy work that you've been a part of. I was wondering if you could share some examples about advocacy work and how you became involved with that both in and outside of the hospital. Well, you know, there's the, uh, the advocacy to, to change the world, to change policy. I think that's ultimately the only thing that's gonna rescue us all because we should have a system where everyone has the same access to the best possible care if everyone had the same chance, we could begin to undo things. So the big picture I've advocated for a national health program, really uh, a national health service like happened in England after the war, makes much more sense to me in which healthcare providers become public service because after all, what is a higher public service than having a healthy nation? But I've also, Gerlene, you know, had a lot of fun. The other day I was remembering an experience that I think is okay to tell because it's so long ago, it's more than 15 years ago. I had a patient who was diabetic and having a long hospitalization. She was a senior bus driver. And uh, while she was in the hospital, the transportation superintendent took the opportunity to eliminate her job. And I was appalled because here was a woman with some galloping now, chronic illness, who was planning a retirement very soon, who had now been abruptly told that she was out. So I, I shifted into this uh, sort of rebel activist mode and I was gonna organize a press conference. And I was gonna do this, and I was gonna do lots of public stuff. Instead, I remembered that our profession has great power. And I called a friend and asked what I should do in terms of who I might be able to talk to. And naturally he gave me the phone number of the president of the school board of that school district. And that school board president gave me the name of another person on the school board who might be sympathetic. And that person gave me a third name to call before I knew it, that her job was reinstated and she was heading for retirement with some dignity. Uh, so you can advocate on many, many levels. It's just a question of being conscious of what's happening in your patient in our patients' lives. You know, more recently, we have this incredible reckoning with racism in our country. And thanks to um, the leadership of our hospital, we have the opportunity through community grand rounds to talk about that problem and its remedies. So I, I can't imagine my life without this dimension. <laughs> and those are examples. Yeah, thank you for sharing those stories. I think they go a long way in showing us as medical students how we can advocate for our patients, both at a larger sense, but also the day-to-day -day with patient encounters. Yeah. 
Have you been able to be involved with the American College of Physicians at all during your advocacy work? I was wondering what role the American College of Physicians played in your career. So several years ago, I was on the, the policy committee for, the, for New York State. Um, at one point, I was uh, chair of the medical student committee. My, I'm very proud that because of my work in PNHP, I was invited to become a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Um, because the ACP thought that that kind of consist consistent advocacy was something that something that uh, deserved respect. Thank you for sharing those experiences. Could you talk a little bit about how your day-to-day -day week or work day looks like currently at, at your current position? You know, I, I started a new project in a very headstrong way. And so <clears throat> I have seven day a week responsibility for my consult service. My work day though is, um, is something like uh, 7 a.m. to 5, 5 p.m. most days, uh, Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, um, we do what we need to do to hold down the service. So the weekends might be a, a two hour day or a four hour day, uh, once in a while, a zero hour day. So it's a five day, 50 hour work week, I would say, more or less. The, the job though that I'm trying to do with teaching in the beginning for the first month or two, there was quite a lot of lesson planning and uh, pre-thinking. So the evenings were consumed with thinking about how, how it could be, how it could really be run. Uh, so I think that the workday that we have is pretty well paced. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't complain about, about the work. The work is great. I know you mentioned that the current work you're doing is a geriatrics consult team. How did your career path lead you to specifically geriatrics? And how do you see that fit in with palliative care medicine? So the, the new chief of trauma surgery a couple of years ago at, at Albany, Dr. Kurt Edwards, he's, he's take, taking that, the reins of a level one trauma center trauma program. And the American College of Surgeons guidelines say that medical co-management for the frail elderly trauma patients is, is what we should do. That's guideline level care. And um, he was looking for a partner that would take on that project. At the same time that Kurt was <clears throat> looking for that partner, I, want, I was asking my department, the Department of Medicine, to, ask, to allow me to launch an evidence-based clinical practice teaching team. Um, the idea is an old one, 50 or 60 years old, the idea that a medical librarian is a clinical librarian can be useful at the bedside. And to have that librarian on the team, I'm convinced is um, an incredibly useful educational experience, hopefully leading to lifelong habits of medical students. Meaning you'll look up, you'll stay up to date, you'll, you'll ask the question and you'll know how to find it in an efficient enough way not to interrupt the patient's visit and then move on. So <clears throat> that was my idea. I, I love Kurt's idea because there's a huge overlap in the care of the frail trauma patient between straightforward geriatric care and palliative care. Difficult decisions arise, patients die. There are patients who should not go to the operating room because the risks really are pro prohibitive. There's this incredible shock that comes with trauma. The mom was independent and doing wonderfully up until the motor vehicle collision. And, and this is gonna change everything. And the communication with families very much in the palliative care territory. So I don't know if my career led me to this as much as it just happened, but I did have a 20-year experience of teaching evidence-based clinical practice since I was a senior resident in Cooperstown um, and had done so at Albany Med time, the palliative care involvement ever since residency, 
and then the next question is some institution change. And I've been at enough institutions to try to be conscious about the impact we might make on the whole house with a role model teaching service. You mentioned you've been involved with teaching students as well as palliative medicine and this new geriatrics consult team. Out of all of these experiences, what would you say is the most rewarding part of your day-to-day -day work? The model that we have puts me, gives me a bird's eye view on the clinical development of medical students like nothing else. Um, right now it's the time of year where the students are in their, sometimes in their first real rotations. Now all of a sudden they're at the bedside in front of a patient who's interrupting them, trying to get the history just right. And the patient, of course, eager to tell, tell it themselves just the way they wanna tell it, um, trying to get through all the data. You can imagine a, a brand new third year student, it's, they're on the spot, it's a struggle. They're shuffling their papers, they're sweating, they're trembling, they're, they're getting the words out, you know? And then they realize that the patient in the bed is actually looking to them as the lead for our team because they're the one talking. And then they realize that they have the answers that the patients, to the questions the patient's asking. Uh, and then they realize they've actually identified the abnormalities that demand to be focused upon. And their senior resident has very little to add. And by the end of two weeks, you have a completely different medical student standing at that same bedside. And I get to watch that cycle. It's very, very empowering. Uh, the greatest compliments have been when the students don't want to leave the team, they want to stay on. Um, those are amazing compliments. So those, those are definitely the best parts of the day and the week. Thank you for sharing that. And I can definitely relate with some of the things you mentioned, being nervous initially to see patients that are really growing as part of your team and learning from the evidence-based curriculum. You mentioned a little bit of things about what medical students you've been working with. If you were to think back to when you were a medical student, what is something about the fields of internal medicine or your current career that you wish you had known back then? I think what students who are gonna go into internal medicine should think about is this. You're limited by your own imagination. Internal medicine is a very, very big field. We have policy scholars, we have people who do mostly counseling, people who work with adolescents, people who do critical illness every day, super specialists in cardiology and you know, electrophysiology cardiologists, critical care cardiologists, critical care nephrologists. Internal medicine is a very, very big place. And you should bring your imagination to what you can contribute to medicine writ large as an internist. And you'll find the gateway. And I dare say with the ACP, you'll find some help in finding your colleagues and the strength that you need. I think that's a great way to end our discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Coates, for your time and sharing us your perspective and your journey in medicine. Thank you, Gerlene, for the chance to talk.